Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Before I treat you to this episode with Ken Clark from 2019, just a bit of personal news. I'm alive. I am alive and I'm well and the operation went well and I'm now out of hospital and continuing my recovery at home. So thank you to all of you who messaged me throughout that time. I read every single message and every single one of them cheered me up. So thank you. Um, But it is great to be back. And... um, I will start recording new episodes soon. I hope you've enjoyed this replay series. Um, judging from the messages I got, a lot of you did. Um, that suggests that some people didn't. If they did, they didn't tell me. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of you had never heard these before, so that's that's cool. And then just nice to go back over them and, and reappraise them. And obviously, it's it's really interesting to listen to them in the context of all the things that have happened since. So um, anyway, I, I'm just so pleased, as you can imagine, to be on the mend um so i will start re- recording uh, new episodes and that is a, that is indeed a thrill so uh, the live shows um will be a bit further off um because um i had the base of my spine removed and i am uh, enjoying the wonderful privilege of learning to walk again so uh, i still have a few challenges uh, to overcome but i am making progress um on standing and walking um uh, you know as a stand up comedian i have to fulfill uh, I feel at least the first part of the title. Um, so, um, but that will happen. I will be back on stage, and I am obviously, as you can imagine, impatient and eager um, for that time to be as soon as possible. Um, but in the meantime, I will record some new episodes from home um, where I'm recovering well. So I, I will return to um, podcasting and radio duties. I'll be back on Absolute Radio um, on on Saturday, the third of February. And I'll be back on British Scandal and, and the other podcasts that I do. And of course here. Um, so yes, anyway, I will waffle on about the fact that I'm back because um, I've told you and now you know. But uh, it's, it's just so good. And uh, what better way to celebrate the joy of being alive and well uh, than by listening to the fantastic Ken Clark from back in 2019. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have uh, a, a true uh, legend of, of, of British politics, the, the father of the House, a man who has served in the House of Commons since 1970. Someone who's, uh, absolutely, uh, wow indeed, uh, one of the longest serving cabinet ministers in the entirety of British history. Uh, a true legend of politics, someone who has uh, admirers on all sides of the divide, has always been the case, and I'm sure even more so uh, now. Um, who knows what is going to happen in the next few days, but we might be talking to our next Prime Minister. <laughs> Please welcome Ken Clark! There we are. There we are. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> oh, you go that side, sorry. Go that side, right. 
You want me on your left to do it? Maybe for the only time tonight. So, um, obviously, this, we're, we're recording this for a podcast, um, so people may be listening to this in the next two or three days. So Good luck be, to them. Just want to be, uh, I want to address you in the correct way, uh, Prime Minister. So, uh, I mean, do you, Makes me nostalgic. People used to say that seriously, you know, years ago. <laughs> I mean, do you feel that, um, obviously you had ambitions to be Prime Minister at least three times um, in 1907, and 2005. I mean, do you feel that actually this is tantalisingly close now, the possibility? I, I, no, I don't. Uh, the, the, I, 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 I went away on holiday, uh, deliberately shut myself off. I was in Norway from all kind of news. Uh, got off a plane when I flew back from Bergen, uh, and I tried to pick up a British newspaper, and Joe Swinson uh, had set off. I saw the story was that I was about to be the next Prime Minister but two, and I, I thought, good grief, this takes me back a few years, you know, <laughs> and, and all that. Uh, and the trouble is, you know, as, as in modern politics, everybody's more interested in personalities than they are about all these complicated issues. It's, it's, it's a bit of a comic footnote, actually. A most bizarre series of events have to take place to produce a government of national unity and me or Harriet Harman heading it up and all the rest of it. And actually, of all the subjects we should be discussing, it's about the most ridiculous. So it doesn't matter a tuppenny damn uh, who leads a government of national unity. What matters is, does anybody have a clue what this government of national unity are all going to agree to do? Uh, and uh, so I, I, I thought it was a rather nice reintroduction to get back into the fray and all that. But no, I haven't come here to make my bid. I've done that. Been there. It's, it's a... No, no, no. You talk about a whole series of ludicrous events having to take place, but at the moment they are, so... Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think it can't get any sillier, and every day you're surprised that some further bizarre turn has taken place. I quite agree. So what, what is your analysis uh, and your reaction to the, the, the Supreme Court judgment this week? I'm uh, surprised, first of all. Uh, I, I was, I'm a very out-of-date lawyer, but I've been Lord Chancellor not too long ago. That was my last, almost last job but one. Uh, but but the, 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 so I am a lawyer, uh, and I, all the lawyers who are more up-to-date you know, than me all agree with me that it's highly unlikely that the Supreme Court would come to this decision. I, Brenda Hale, a great fan of, she's a very nice woman, but I, I thought she and her colleagues would... It, uh, they just would not take the step of getting into such a politically charged area, their bailout. What I hoped was they'd find reluctantly for the government and then they'd come out with what a lawyer calls obiter dicta, all kinds of pronouncements about how in a properly run country these things should happen and just to try and lay down a marker for future, you see. So that was what I thought would happen. So when I just, and I never thought they'd be unanimous. Uh, so I was startled by the result. That's my first earnest, out-of-date lawyer's uh, approach to it. But every other lawyer I know, I, I met one of the people who, pardon me, days, one of the one of the barristers who acted for one of the people bringing the case. He didn't act for Gina, but anyway, I won't, I won't go further than that. Uh, and I, had, I discussed it with him earlier on when I wished him the best of luck. And I, I remembered I'd said to him, you know, I don't think you've got many feathers to fly with, really, but, you know, good luck and all that. And I think he was a little startled to find he'd won. But, 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 but it's a very good job he has. I mean, I, can, I would defend it because uh, I'm a great defender of an unwritten constitution. I would say it's a good thing, but it depends on conventions, uh, all kinds of accepted ways of doing things. What, oh, British government will, what British governments will do, 
and what they won't do. Uh, and there's a kind of very British kind of good chap rule, you know, that runs through the whole thing. Well, all these weird political campaigning characters that Boris has surrounded himself with uh, have no time for Parliament. They have no, don't know anything about government or anything of that kind. And, you know, once they're told, well, these are only conventions. Oh, damn that. We'll tear those up. You know, we, we were going to have a presidential system with no checks and balances. No Parliament, no courts, you know, just a wise president who will occasionally tell the cabinet what he's just done. Uh, and I'm being converted to a written constitution. And the Supreme Court has stepped in, and obviously they were persuaded, you know, this is impossible. And I, I, I only defended it today, I got up today. The reaction of everybody to the judgment is depends on whether they're a remainer or a lever, which is stupid, because as, as Baroness Hale said, that's the one thing they weren't deciding, and I believe that's obviously the case. Um, but but the, 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 the truth is, if, if future governments had built on this, I might have enjoyed listening to the right wing of the Conservative Party going utterly berserk as Jeremy Corbyn, if he ever gets into government, which I don't think he ever will, but if they ever got into government, you know, suddenly started deciding to send Parliament away because he hadn't got a majority uh, for some of his more outrageous uh, things. I mean, the right wing of the Conservative Party would go absolutely loony if a Labour government ever tried to send Parliament away simply because the majority in Parliament disagreed with their main policy. It was outrageous and it would have had to be corrected or it could have got completely out of hand. So it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Sorry to give you... I always give long answers. Oh, no, it's good. <laughs> very good. Uh, and what do you make of the reactions, particularly in Parliament today, of the Attorney-General Geoffrey Cox and the Prime Minister Boris Johnson? Uh, I miss Boris. Uh, I decided to have a break. I, I've sat in the chamber most of the afternoon. I, want, I particularly went in for the serious statement, which was on Iran. Uh, but nobody's taking notice of that. But I did was there for Jeffrey, and I enjoyed it enormously. It, it was great. I, 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 other people were, some people were enraged by it, but it's amazing, you know. It's, uh, it's pre-Rumpel. It's a fantastic style. Actually, he's a good lawyer. Uh, unlike, well, it was the recent Lord Chancellor. Uh, unlike some other politicians in politics, he said all the right things about the court and the law, and, and what the judgment was about, what it wasn't, and all that. But he has this marvelous 19th century, amazing style. And, and then he decided to get a bit political, which he's allowed to. And by that time, it was really arms failing, you know, rolling tones, all the rest of it. Well, rather depends on one's temperament. I thought this was hilarious. <laughs> uh, but other people were deeply, deeply shocked. But, so I left that. Boris, I kept waiting for Boris. Every, the whole thing's gone on all afternoon, uh, and I was in for quite a lot of it. And I, Because I was coming here, I finally decided, well, is Boris going to say anything new? Uh, and I thought, highly unlikely. <laughs> and uh, Jamie from my office has been trying to keep in touch with the door because he's come here with me, but he, he, he was... Uh, uh, he was trying to keep me up to date. As far as I can see, he's just done, said nothing new. He just ranted on about how he's, you know, he was only proroguing the House because he'd had a sudden thought. He had a, lots of policies to put in the Queen's speech <laughs> and all this. And then he started just carrying on about the joys of Brexit. And, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn certainly seems to have said nothing new that he hasn't said umpteen times before. So I'm probably better off here. <laughs> uh, 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 uh,
you once said it would be ludicrous to have Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Yeah, no, you're the first person to look that up. There, there was this... There was this occasion when I was chatting with my old friend Malcolm Rifkin, when really for two old sweats we should have had more sense. The idea you can sit in the corner of a television studio when you've just done a thing and be absolutely confident you can just have a chat together. Uh, and, you know, they put a camera and a mic on us, and everybody reported me. Uh, he was asking my opinions of all the candidates. Uh, and I, well, notoriously, he asked me about Theresa May, and I said, well, she's a bloody difficult woman. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I went on to say, but you and I work for Margaret Thatcher, for God's sake. <laughs> so, uh, it's probably why I thought I was probably going to vote for it. He asked me about Boris Johnson, and I, people have pointed out to me, people who remember things, that I did actually say, well, it's just ridiculous to think of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. <laughs> and nobody's quoted it back at me until you have this evening. But uh, I haven't changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> what, what really strikes... Uh, me, I suppose, and many others watching it, is that, you know, your whole life you get used to liking some Prime Ministers more than others, and yeah. watching politicians that you didn't vote for, but saying, oh, well, actually, John Major seems like a really decent person. Yeah. Or Ken Clark seems like a really decent person. Boris Johnson, I suppose, in a way, because of Leave Remain, is able to reach into some Labour heartlands like Stoke and places like that, and maybe mobilise people in a way that previous Conservative uh, Prime Ministers might not have been able to, but... Do you think he can command that genuine cross-party, cross-country respect in the way that someone like John Major? Well, let, let me make it clear. I, I, I just made an unkind remark about Boris as Prime Minister. It's not personal. He's, he's good fun as company. I, I never <laughs> I've never fallen out with anybody in my life just because I politically disagree with him and I don't always disagree with him. Uh, 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 and, uh, you know, he's, uh, I, his private life, which you had fun with, I... I take the view it was nothing to do with me, frankly, so I couldn't care less about that. Uh, but but the, 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 uh, so I haven't fallen out with him personally, um, but, but the strategy he's following is as you describe, and uh, he, he is utterly, he appears utterly set in electoral terms on winning the white working class Brexit vote in the North and North Midlands, and seems content to sacrifice the home county's younger liberal vote in the South. Uh, and so everything is pitched at ousting Farage in all these Labour seats in the North, some which are very vulnerable because the left behind industrial towns are protesting against the establishment, in part by being overwhelmingly leave. Uh, and so he's, he's fighting, he's trying to outdo Farage. The, the whole parliament versus the people thing is taken straight from Brexit party campaigning of six months ago and, and literature. Uh, and seriously, I think that's, firstly, it's a rather cynical and shallow approach because the politics of Boris Johnson, insofar as he's got any politics on any subject, uh, I do not match the inhabitants of Stoke-on-Trent and Barnsley and Hartlepool and so on. Uh, and it's already well saying you give up Guildford because you're going to get Bishop Auckland and, and all this. Uh, but actually, uh, maybe wishful thinking, it's a gamble that isn't going to come off. 
uh, I think Mr. Farage, who's the most successful prime minister of, of my generation, uh, not prime minister, but politician, <laughs> complete, he succeeded in probably completely changing the role of Britain in the world. Um, but he's a good runner. Uh, 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 and uh, the idea that, you know, he's going to get all these Brexit votes and sweep the north of England and take the rest of it, he'll take some. He's, he's won Mansfield in my county and other unlikely places. Ever. First time ever. I used to fight Mansfield. And very proud to keep the majority below 20,000 against me. <laughs> uh, but, but he's not going to repeat that across the line. I think Nigel Farage will beat him. Uh, and he won't get an electoral pact with Farage. As, you know, Farage is quite clear that it's all right, he'll have a pact as long as he's given a clear run at 60 to 80 seats in the North and the Midlands. And Farage, if there was a pact, you know, has a good chance of winning quite a lot of those. But the Conservatives aren't getting very much in return uh, for that. Uh, so I, I disapprove of all this. Uh, and I you know, do think it's going to misfire. But, I mean, the, the policy at times, until it all collapsed when the House of Commons defeated it, was plainly to outdo Farage. And uh, that's where the government was rapidly going, competing for his votes in order to gain seats from Labour in the North, terrifying half the Labour Party in the process. But I'm not sure it's going to work. Both leaderships have deserted the centre ground and, and explicitly and quite proudly so. As someone who's often seen as a, a, a standard bearer for the centre ground, I mean, do you worry about the collapse of the centre? Or is it, do you I worry about it a lot. I mean, the, the, uh, this is a, you made it a very cheery evening when you started. And I'm a naturally optimistic, laid back kind of character. But, I mean, really, we ought to be deeply depressed uh, <laughs> that the system has come. <laughs> Where it is, uh, there is still a big centre ground, but I don't, I'm not one of those who says, well, really, still politics is fought out of the centre. The, 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 the anger, the polarisation of opinion is at least as bad amongst the public as it is in Parliament. Parliament accurately really reflects the public mood with, with polarised views, a lot of anger about uh, a great deal of protest, and, and no majority for anything. Uh, angry leavers who think they're in the majority, angry remainers who think they're in the majority, uh, some soft Brexiteers who you know, think they're in the middle, and a whole lot of people who are fed up with the whole thing. Uh, and out of this chaos, our traditional two-party system, veteran like me, is very used to the centre-right, centre-left, few percentage poll change and income, you know, moderate social democrat labour to replace uh, one nation Tories running the country. It's miles away from where we are and it has produced two of the most unlikely candidates for leadership that you could <laughs> ever have imagined. I mean, if the choice for Prime Minister, I don't think it is the choice of Prime Minister, any choice for Prime Minister, you know, seriously, after the next election, you're likely to have a hung parliament, I would guess. Um, but, you know, the idea that two parties present as potential Prime Ministers, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> if you'd told me that was going to happen ten years ago, I'd have used the phrase you reminded me of, and I, that's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> uh, that that it, they, they are 
the, the main parties alternatives for leadership. But it's symptomatic of a lot of other things going wrong. And I, anyway, I'm giving you a long answer again, but it's gone wrong in every other Western democracy, as you quite rightly said. And Trump, Brexit, Boris Johnson, Marine Le Pen, Salvini, Alternative for Deutschland. I could go on. It is repeated in every other Europe, Western democracy. They're not functioning in the way they function for the vast majority of my political life. And there was a very angry mood of protest and, and dislocation out there. And the old big block of centre-right politicians, big block of centre-left politicians, taking in turns when one of them's made of pigs here and then the others take over. I'm not sure we'll ever go back to that, but it is seriously threatened right now. Part of how we got here was the Conservative Party's endless desire to talk about Europe, and it was something that you hmm. really stood against life. time and time and time again. Um, why, and obviously you, you have good friends and, and colleagues that, that, that share these views, what is it about our relationship with Europe that has so animated the Tory party for so long? Well, it's my entire, dominated my entire political life. Uh, I became an activist when I was a student, and so I decided that... I took some time deciding which party would have the privilege of having me uh, as a member, but my time decided I joined the Conservatives, very, mainly because they were modernising, but uh, because Macmillan had applied to join the European community. Uh, and that divided the party, uh, divided the Labour Party, and it became one of the animating themes of my first career, whole career. My first parliament, I was in the government whip's office, in the Heath government, uh, helping organise the majority for our joining the European community. Split us badly. Uh, the party had a nervous breakdown. Uh, we, we had to defeat our imperialist wing, led by Enoch Powell, uh, by winning the votes of the Jenkinsites uh, and the pro-Europeans who were defying their party to come over and support us. Uh, and it's run through my entire political career. It nearly died out in the... Oh, late 1980s, the, the country and the party seemed to settle down. It's the same conflict all the way through. I can bore you by getting even before my own political time. There are those, it was the imperialist wing of my party, that there are those who are most comfortable with the role they always saw us in, what it used to be like, uh, Dunkirk spirit, Britain alone, that's the real Britain, and upset by the pace of change in the modern world. Uh, and then there are those who happen to be thriving and doing quite well in the modern world, globalised economy, smaller political world. You know, they love it. There are lots of them in London. Uh, and they always gone along with, you know, enhancing our role in the world by being one of the leaders in the European bloc and joining in a modern free trade globalised economy. And it's a huge gulf. And it, it, I was old enough to remember the big controversy when I was an activist student was my great hero, Ian MacLeod, was giving away the empire. Britain's role was being sacrificed to people who weren't ready for it. We were betraying our kith and kin led by Smithy uh, in southern Rhodesia and things that nobody here. The British have expunged all this from their memory. The same bitter battle went on. My, my hero, Ian MacLeod, who did all that, uh, gave independence to all these African countries that we could not afford to maintain our military presence or anything else in. 
uh, was sent to Coventry personally by half the Conservative Party because he was giving the empire away. And that more, it, it moved on to become a resistance to this anyway getting associated closely and integrating our economy with the people we'd fought in the war. You know, the British no longer learn any history uh, about the empire or the Commonwealth. That's all expunged from our memory. Uh, the British have a curiously British memory of the Second World War, uh, particularly the older generation. Uh, and that feeds through to Britain proud and alone and not getting mixed up with these continental things. That's these are the underlying big things, I think. And those who hate the pace of change and think it used to be better, and those who like the pace of change, not surprisingly, they tend to be the younger, the better educated, the enterprising and so on, who just think Britain's got to play its role in the modern world. And uh, I'm untypical of my generation. I've stuck in the second for some reason. That, as it usually done. And the Labour Party has gone through a slightly parallel thing. The left of the Labour Party, nowadays the Corbynistas, they're always reactionary. They're just against change. Uh, there was a golden era in the late 1940s from which we should never depart. I remember that's a tedious time of, of, of George's and everything else and, and, the, and the grey bureaucratic phase in our history. Very important things were done. Uh, but you know, the left always resists change. The, the, the Jenkinsites, today's social democrats, uh, they don't reject the modern world. They too want to move on with it. That lie, underlies the whole thing. I don't remember since Suez, which influenced me in my formative days when I was a politically addicted sixth former, I, I don't remember the public having blazed apart into angry warring camps uh, so, as much as they have again now. So there we are. That's a rather abstract interpretation. Gets us away from the crackpot events of day to day at the moment. <laughs> but, but that underlines it all. Yeah, absolutely underlines it all. Those people who would feel happier if we were entirely on our own, back running our own affairs, and somehow detached and a bit switched off from the, what is becoming a frightening pace of change, which includes the old industrial white working class of the North, uh, the labor equivalent, uh, and those who can't think we've got to live with this. It's the modern world. For God's sake, what on earth are we going into isolation for? Why on earth are we putting new trade barriers between ourselves and Europe and all the rest of it? Can't we do quite well? Aren't we doing quite well already in the single market, which it was British governments that created anyway in the first place? You talk with fondness about the Jenkinsites, and in your book you, you talk with fondness about uh, Shelley Williams and Tony Crossland. Is it fair to say that had you been born uh, maybe five years later or five years earlier, you might have, because you joined the Labour Club at university and joined the other clubs, but... but I joined actually, a lot at first. <laughs> <laughs> but you could have been a Labour politician. Uh, but it could be, but the Labour Party, uh, well, as I say, it was reactionary. Even that great man, Gateskill, was reactionary. Uh, and the Conservative Party, practically all the active politicians, the ones who went into politics, uniquely probably from my time at university, we all went to the Conservative Party because the Conservative Party were the modernizers. It was Rab Butler, really, uh, but it had Millard, who was a wily old so-and-so, uh, and McLeod and Maudling and Heath, and there was this cause. Uh, the cause was modernizing Britain, uh, but Heath uh, was the leading advocate 
follow, at the instructions of Macmillan, who was equally keen of moving to become a European power. It was a political venture, it was also made clear as political, to actually give us a role in the world, which worked. We were one of the three leading big powers in the European bloc, and of the three, we were the one with the closest links with America. And that gave us, at the time of Suez, we'd been a laughing stock, absolute laughing stock. Our foreign policy was to, because of our, our, our role in the world, running a canal and occupying <coughs> a strip of Egyptian territory, we had a right to defend our route to India, uh, which, empire old boy, it was called the Commonwealth nowadays, but we, 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 we were very important, we kept our route to India. And an abortive, ludicrous, go-it-alone uh, military arrangement changed the minds of a lot of people like me. Uh, and uh, the, the, Now, the Labour Party was on the wrong side. The Labour Party was only the Jenkinsites pro-European. Don't forget, the Labour Party then fell into the hands uh, of, 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 of people who became increasingly anti-European, left-wing, uh, and reactionary, in my opinion. It's, it's the Labour Party. There's always been a part of the Labour Party that can't get out of that. Uh, you talk about modernisers. Um, Margaret Thatcher, probably one of the great Tory modernisers, probably the most yeah. prominent, certainly, uh, certainly post-war. Um, that modernity and modernisation programme, uh, whilst it was definitely modernising, also came at a great price as well. I mean, there must have been periods during the Thatcher period where uh, Britain is at the centre of global events, it is modernising, but the, there was a price to pay for some of that, perhaps. Uh, there was, which you tried to mitigate. I mean, Margaret was, was a difficult woman. And, and, and <laughs> but the, the, the structural reforms that she presided over were necessary. And they were costly. Uh, unfortunately, we have not eliminated the price of it. But the idea, uh, which we might have stuck with, that my county will be full of coal mines in the 21st century was ludicrous, utterly ludicrous. This was a dying industry. The majority of the coal mines in the United Kingdom had been closed before Margaret Thatcher became prime minister. You want to relate to things, it was all under uh, the Wilson government when Alf Robins, a leading Labour politician, was put in charge of the coal board and it closed coal mines like there was no tomorrow because it was just a ludicrously overexpensive uh, source of energy for the country and it's a 19th century industry. Uh, and the idea is that, uh, that it required dramatic change and it required... Uh, you know, in, in my opinion, market forces with a social conscience. Now, Margaret was all abrasive and aggressive, and we flirted with the worst of... She flirted with the worst of some of the more ultra-libertarian free marketeers and so on, but not really. She did have a social conscience as well, though it wasn't always totally apparent. But they were necessary. Now, we thought we were mitigating the consequences. Every government of my lifetime has had uh, regional policies, industrial regeneration policies, and all the rest of it, which were going to help the places where the change was most erratic turn around. Now, unfortunately, that's tricky, and it's defeated everybody, and that's still coming to place. But the idea that we could have done without the Thatcher reforms, that we could have stayed with, well, Italy has finally changed, but we could have stayed with all those continental countries that politically were not able to do it, I think would have been 
disastrous. We were becoming an industrial, an economic laughingstock. Uh, and uh, it, it, she gave us the courage of our convictions. Everybody, until Margaret came along in the Conservative Party, would have said, well, of course, it would be much better if we didn't have this bureaucratic state-owned section of the economy, if life was not dominated by the trade unions, and if ministers did not have to spend 90% of their time on industrial relations. But then we would say, if you weren't careful, as my, my great admirer of people like Jim Pryor always said, oh, you can't do that, it'd upset the trade unions, it's not possible in the real world, old boy. Well, she didn't understand all that, so she gave us all the courage of our convictions, and, well, it was, you know, it was pretty lively the whole damn <laughs> time. The changes were desirable, mitigating the consequences of a world where the economy is changing at an ever-accelerating rate now has so far proved ever so slightly beyond the range of most politicians. Also true in every Western country, Trump appeals to the left behind in the Rust Belt states and the more difficult rural areas and those who resent the pace of change want to go back to America proud isolationist alone. I won't go through all the others I listed. It's the same in every case. But the idea, oh, the answer was just to stay stuck in the 1960s, which we're going back 50 years if we leave with no deal. Going back to the 1960s is, in my biased opinion, a total illusion. And to blame all the problems on the fact that Margaret Thatcher made us going for essential structural reforms, idiotic. There are several European countries that I want the people, they need a Margaret Thatcher. You, you won't lift Italy and Spain, and Spain's doing better, uh, Greece. Ideally, they need a Margaret Thatcher. The trouble is, only in extreme circumstances will an electorate ever vote for a Margaret Thatcher. Because the electorate on the whole don't like, most of the electorate don't like change. They usually, when you have a policy that involves radical change, the policy are always, the public are always against it. In terms of your relationship with Margaret Thatcher, uh, did it change during that period of her, her leadership? And would she seek counsel from you, even though towards the end, perhaps, that, that, that distance was slightly marked? Well, she ran a cabinet government. So did John Major. It's practically extinct now. I don't think the present cabinet's allowed to talk about anything. <laughs> uh, but but, but, but it's, that's been growing since Blair, really, since it, they started it, but it gets worse and worse. Uh, she ran a collective government. Uh, and nobody, you know, people are very surprised to hear that, but, but we, we, everything, all the policies had to have the approval of cabinet. The cabinet would agree policies in cabinet committees and then resolve them. We had, we had much cabinet sat for long times, you know, the whole morning every week. In Heath's day, it was two mornings a week, but we sometimes went over on when we got a lot on. Uh, and that was to try to get cabinet consent mm. to policies. And Margaret, you know, was in the minority sometimes. Um, she didn't like being in the minority. Uh, she spoke for 50% of the time, uh, you know, and she always started discussions where we get quite clear what she thought she, you know, we all should agree to. But I saw her lose uh, arguments, uh, sometimes with rather bad grace. Uh, I persuaded her to change her mind on things. You had one-to-one -one rows with her sometimes if, as a cabinet minister, you wanted to bring things forward and it wasn't as she wanted. And the great thing about arguing with Margaret, 
which you had to remind yourself afterwards sometimes, uh, <laughs> was the only thing you were arguing about was what is in the public interest? What is the right thing to do? If you remember the phrase, it was conviction politics. She never read newspapers. She, she, the idea the opinion polls were against you didn't interest her. Uh, she, we, we, we never had a, a major policy which was ahead in the opinion polls. That I, never, I never implemented, and I, I was with her all the way through, shadow and minister, then cabinet for a long time. I never had a policy to implement which the most of the public agreed with. Uh, but what we did was politicians are meant to have views on the national interest. You're trying to make a bit of a difference to the good. You do what you think is right, and then you argue the toss about it, and you try to persuade people why you're doing it, and you, you know, all the rest of it. You've got to do it in the first half of a parliament, because with any luck, if it starts to work properly, if you haven't made a pig's ear, the public change their view, and they start changing their mind. So the Thatcher government, every term, was hugely unpopular in my midterm. The first session, we dropped down to about 18% in the polls, I think. The Labour Party split in two, and both halves of it were ahead of us. <laughs> uh, that's true. It's absolutely literally true. <laughs> and uh, we got elected. We got elected. We, we could, then you turned your attention to getting another term and having a go at getting in. Well, there couldn't be a greater contrast with politics nowadays, which increasingly over the last 15 years has been, can we get good headlines next Tuesday in the Daily Telegraph? That is what it's all aimed at now. And opinion polls are all over the place. You, know, you can't possibly run a country on opinion polls. Uh, you're meant to have political skills to, to implement, you're elected to implement what you believe to be in the public interest, defend it, argue for it, and with any luck, and the initial reaction's over, public will start coming through. I mean, eventually, when Blair brought the Labour Party back to power, he made no attempt to reverse any of the Thatcher reforms. And indeed, my uh, health reforms, Ken Baker's education reforms, were taken up with enthusiasm, were taken much further than Ken and I could ever dared hoped we could get away with. Uh, and that, that, was, that was the Thatcher government. Describing government in that way it sounds very attractive, particularly now. But you have to have, you have, to have some idea of public opinion. Oh. And Paul Tax proved that was that it was, you know, a, a policy was... She was that's, when she lost, that's when she lost it. Yeah. The trouble with the Paul Tax, it was totally impractical. Uh, she just... There should be a maximum permitted dose for leadership of a party. Ten years is the maximum. Uh, it's bound to end in tears if it does go on forever. And she did begin, she'd reached a stage where she, she was no longer, the collective stuff was going. I mean, she was going by the seat of her pants. The days when her judgment usually in the end coincided with what went right, she was losing all that. And she got obsessed with the wretched poll tax, which was a crazy policy, uh, and ploughed on with it. But she was getting, you know, she'd... 
you, you wear out, I'd say, 10 years is the maximum permitted dose, really. That, that after that, it's almost impossible not to have made so many enemies and beginning to lose get off the rails, it's time for somebody else to have a go. So she did lose it in the end, you know. Do you think Boris but, will but, do 10 years? But the poll tax has never... <laughs> <laughs> well, he might amaze us all, you know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the most, you know, go back to history, the most unlikely people have, in the end... Uh, done quite well, but I, 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 Boris's approach is very different to, to Margaret's, so I think it doesn't <laughs> resemble it. Absolutely, uh, he could be a very short-lived prime minister. When you think about the two big kind of rows of the of the, of the Thatcher, the miners' strike and the poll tax, you're an MP in Nottinghamshire, which affected by the, the mm. miners' strike, an area deeply affected by the poll tax. I mean, you were going to watch. Nottingham Forest and Notts County, and, and still do go and watch them. Always have, yeah. Football in that period was, uh, uh, I mean, football grounds were far more robust places than they well, are. Well, we had that phase of, of, of uh, football violence, yeah. Did you get involved? Michigan. <laughs> uh, no, you had, you had to try dodging it. Uh, that was the thing. Uh, I mean, trying to avoid it, I used to get, take my children to football matches, and you did have to be careful where you went and all this kind of thing. It's because uh, it, it came at times, it got quite fixated, uh, football violence. But did I, you get I, any abuse from fans? Did you ever worry about going to football matches in that period? Uh, not for political abuse, no. No, no, no I didn't ever get that. But uh, I mean, just the fact that if you've got kids with you, you just have to make sure. I, I did once find myself with my daughter and one of her friends between two warring camps. That was actually not at Nottingham, that was Aston Villa. Uh, I can't remember who the other team were, but there was a gang, large numbers from both sides, preparing to have a punch up. Uh, and I'd accidentally wandered between the two <laughs> sides. Uh, but, but because I got the two kids with me, uh, we, we just, they, they, they let us go through before they uh, came, got into the real entertainment for the afternoon, as far as they were concerned. A minor strike is more serious. That was the worst. That was the worst social crisis of my lifetime. The minor strike that that did bring things to a head, and was the, the cultural implications of all that were quite important. That was a real moment of social tension, very divisive, and in Nottingham, very apparent, even in my own constituency, because uh, we had working miners, uh, and pickets poured in uh, to Nottinghamshire. Uh, and were defended by police who were poured in. And uh, I went to Mansfield at one time during the strike, and I went to a police checkpoint, you know, before I could get in doing a political meeting. In my own constituency, I had one pit left uh, before the strike uh, the, 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 at Cotgrave. Uh, and uh, the, the, that was, the miners from Kent were coming up and doing the picketing, because um, that was a very militant area, Kent. Uh, policemen came from Essex uh, to control it, uh, and they occasionally had the old punch up in the main street of the village. Uh, all my constituents went to work over the fields around the back, and, and uh, the pick going on working as normal. But the underlying tensions, including the old, they were being roused, the old class tensions, the old regional tensions, and uh, above all, the tensions between the, the politically motivated, I'm getting into bias now, but it was very politically motivated hardcore left of the trade union movement and and the government it was a critical time which I think I personally think obviously the country came through it and we healed ourselves from that the present tensions are different but 
Uh, these tensions are going to take a few years to get out of, I think. Uh, we, we're both uh, supporters of Nottingham Forest, and we, we shouldn't indulge that in a, it, certainly not outside of Nottingham. But um, uh, Forest, obviously managed for a long time by Brian Clough, who I gather you had a friendship with. You know, he was a, he was well, a I socialist. Know, with him. Yeah, I knew him quite well. Yeah, was, I mean, he, not, not, he wasn't a great mate or anything, but the two of us know each other, knew each other quite well. He was quite political. Well, he was a very left wing. I mean, you, you probably know the stories I always tell about Brian, if you think, because you, know, you read my book. But I think I put him in there. I can't remember what I put in the book. Uh, uh, <laughs> the, 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 he, was, he was quite left wing. He was, very he was offered the Labour candidature at Loughborough. He very wisely turned it down. He would have been a disastrous member of the Parliament. <laughs> he, he, was, he, he was tempted. But for, he went for a phase at one point of reading, leading demos outside my Saturday morning surgeries. <laughs> Uh, and the same people every week, but with a different banner every week, a different cause, uh, would go marching past, shouting and all the rest of it, and cheering and all the rest. And I, 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 I did have a conversation with him, got him out of it. And I, I, I said, firstly, you know, could you knock it off, Brian, because you're frightened some of the old ladies who come to see me, and we can't hear what the hell we're talking about inside. And anyway, at the moment, uh, you know, your football club is doing no better than my government, uh, <laughs> and I, I shall start getting together a demo before the matches before I come into the ground in uh, the afternoons. Anyway, I joked and talked him out of it. And the, the other thing I used to do with Brian was uh, he always made a mess of buying overseas players when we became a big European club. Uh, and, and things like getting visas and you know, work permits and all that. So, particularly when I was Home Secretary, I get a funny call from Brian. Uh, could I sort out this or that and get a player in? But I, I, that, that meant I got to know him a bit. He was a remarkable football manager. Any fool can win trophies managing Arsenal or Manchester United or that. But to take a you know, bog-standard Midland team, uh, and even in those days, and, and teams that, you know, could sometimes second division have a few years in the first division and go back again, going back to the old divisions. To take Derby County to the first division championship, fall out with them, <laughs> out of Beastman and Leeds, get picked up by us and take Nottingham Forest to the first division championship, and then to win two European Cups with Nottingham Forest. There is no football manager uh, rival that at all and it, it was in the most distinctive way you know it was all drinking effing blinding <laughs> getting players who everybody other clubs were anxious to get out of the dressing room so he didn't have to pay a big transfer fee because we got no money it was a quite remarkable performance i think we can all agree it's the best thing that ever happened um, <laughs> <laughs> you like me come from nottingham again what i try to avoid in politics you're getting me you're quite the wrong influence this evening <laughs> Uh, they are becoming a football club that lives in the past, you know, all the clubs are, oh, well, remember our great days, and if we're not careful in a hundred years' time, you know, anguished Nottingham Forest supporters will be saying, no, you remember the great days of Brian Clough and all that, but who knows who might get back. I, you weren't at the Emirates last night. No, it wasn't, no. We, we kept Arsenal that. down to 5-0, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, we're, 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 we're not back to Brian Clough yet. It's not, uh, not happened. Uh, I, I remember that period, so, uh, not the glory years, I wasn't born, but I remember, um, I remember you opened... You weren't born? I was born in 1982. Um, so I remember later successes. <laughs> I should stop going on about these historic times. <laughs> But um, I remember you opening the new stand in, I think, 1992, the Bridgeford stand. And what I remember about that period, Clough still managing Forest, 
John Major's the prime minister. That, that year, 1992, starts the season where Forest get relegated. It's also the year that John Major scores this incredible victory, really, against, against Neil Kinnock. And it was mm. the first real political memory that I have is the 92 election. And really, even as a kid, thinking, oh, well, Kinnock's going to win this. I mean, at the, As everybody thought. Yeah, and did you think he was going to win? Well, I think the world thought he was going to win, uh, that, that Kinnock was going to win. That, that was John Major's highlight. Uh, that was John Major's highlight. Um, and John was a good Prime Minister, but um, and I'd probably annoy him by always saying Thatcher was the best Prime Minister I ever worked for. <laughs> Leaving aside all the problems. Uh, um, uh, John's a great mate of mine. But, but, but the achievement of the major government really, historic achievement, uh, was to consolidate the Thatcher structural reforms. Now that 1992 government we were going to lose. I thought we were going to lose. Anybody who knew anything about politics thought we were going to lose. <coughs> And if you remember, if you're obviously with old enough then to remember the campaign, it was very much John Major with this weird thing of getting an old soapbox out yes. and doing appearances. Uh, and, and it was Thatcherism with a human face. And he came across as the thorough, which he is, as a thoroughly decent, nice guy. Uh, you know, great achievements to his name, to, to ever become uh, a prime minister as he had. Uh, the left helped him enormously by turning up and barracking him, so he was always surrounded by uh, the worst elements of the Labour Party shrieking and chanting at him, which fed uh, the message. And it was rather a personal election win, and we carried on the agenda, but with more of a social conscience, slightly more restrained, but we consolidated things. And the 1992 defeat had a shattering effect on the Labour Party. Kinnock had made a great achievement in modernising the Labour Party and making it electable again, but it hadn't quite got there. And I think it was John Smith by then. Was it, was it Smith by then? Uh, yeah, after 1992, yeah, it's yeah, 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 it was after, yeah, so it was Kinnock. But he would have, it was Kinnock, he would have felt obliged to start reversing half the Thatcher things. The movement was still devoted to repealing the trade union laws and all this. When they, were, when they got over being shattered by the fact they'd lost the election, I mean, most of the Labour politicians I knew could not believe they'd lost again. I mean, the, the, people begin to say, can the Labour Party ever win an election ever again? Because they've been out for so long. Blair, Mandelson, Brown, actually decided the party had got to change. They weren't going to reverse the Thatcher reforms. They had to come to terms with the Thatcher reforms. They had to turn the Labour Party into a, a social democrat party that was looking forward and didn't want a rerun of the miners' strike or whatever to get revenge on the other side. That's how, helped by our Eurosceptics, Blair won power so convincingly in 1997. And he brought in the Labour Party, totally new Labour Party, as I've already said, made absolutely no attempt whatever to reverse any of the structural reforms. And that was the major government's achievement. And the Corbyn Easters now hate the Blairites far more than they hate Tories. They, they're in as Tories, but uh, they're trying to reverse that. And if I was a Labour man, I would obviously be one of those who would think that's a historic disastrous mistake. 
if the Labour Party had a Social Democrat leader now, they'd be 30% ahead in the polls and onto a walkover. Uh, I, I remember you getting involved in a campaign called uh, Britain in Europe uh, early on in that new Labour period, and it was you no, and Michael Hasseltine, I think it was Paddy Ashdown and Charles Kennedy, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, they did these cross party. I went yeah, to one in Nottingham. Uh, Mike, Michael and I, Hezra uh, and I, uh, appeared on a platform. Uh, with Tony Blair and a rather more reluctant Gordon Brown, who sat there and sulked there all the way through. Yes, didn't lie. It was just making a message. It, 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 uh, but, uh, it, but imagine it, if that campaign would have continued and we'd have had a well, it has really. But imagine if it had been an organised cross-party pro-European drumbeat that, that that successive leaderships would have signed up to. We might not have voted to leave. Well, uh, I mean. Trying to get cross-party things going now. It, yes, the, the campaigns all run into the ground, but it was it, it's it's it was part of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, and it, we never quite. I say the nearest we got to getting rid of this European revive, uh, divide, which I won't repeat, I think is, is symbolic of a lot of other things. It's why it persists. Was the late 1980s for a time in the late 1980s in the uh, the the country was settling down to the European Union and I think it would have settled down irreversibly. If you want me to go in for mad theories again, it, the fall of Margaret Thatcher has caused to go backwards. Uh, the, the, the people who surrounded Margaret after she, in the bitterness of being defeated and when she retired persuaded her it was all a European plot that had brought her down and revenge for Margaret Thatcher was the driving motive that put the Maastricht rebels together again and it all flared up again and the Tory parties never got rid of it and nor has the Labour Party really. You've still got Michael Foote and the Eurosceptics fighting the Jenkinsites and the, both parties have got mad coalitions, uh, constitutions uh, for their parties when it comes to electing leaders. So in, in both parties there's a pro-European Conservative majority, there's a pro-European Social Democrat majority in the Parliamentary Labour Party, and at the moment both parties are being led by the anti-European right and the anti-European left. I mean, th those, those structures and those constitutions are, are, are something that you have painful personal experience of in, in 97, 01 and 05. And I, what I really remember about that period was I was very much a supporter of New Labour, and uh, thinking, well, obviously the Tories have got to pick Ken Clark if they want to win. And it, just everyone I spoke to, even concerned. I think that was Tony Blair's view. <laughs> but that's my being arrogant, that I don't know. But yeah, well, I can't blame the system. It was fashionable in the 1990s to say the members decide the leadership. I actually think the sensible system is for MPs to decide the leadership because they know the candidates intimately well and they're the ones who've got to actually fall in behind the leadership of the winner and organise the campaigning and the parliamentary activity that gets them to power if they can. But it was fashionable in the 1990s to go with this democracy and both parties have now gone to giving votes to anybody who pays a subscription, uh, which attracts activists who don't really represent the broad vote that they have outside. So I can't complain too much because I've lost so often. I lost by both systems. I, 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 I lost for the MPs one only to William Hague and then I lost to the membership a couple of times. So 
I was I was too pro-European is my defence. So that was the thing, and all all my supporters always urged me to make a Eurosceptic speech to calm it down and, and to modify it, which I thought would just get me laughed at. And anyway, I, I didn't want to be Prime Minister pretending that I agreed with policies that I thought were utterly unacceptable. So, but anyway, I'm not lamenting. Probably had a much better life than out of it. But that, that's the system is is now part of the system because, I mean, if you half the Labour Party don't want an election at the moment because they dread the idea of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister, and so the vast bulk of the public. And I say the Labour Party would be onto a walkover if they could, if they could only get rid of Jeremy. It is the current position. The last time you stood for the leadership was 2005. That was the leadership contest that David Cameron won, uh, eventually against David Davis. How would, a, apart from probably not having a referendum on uh, whether to uh, leave the European Union or not, how would a Ken Clark government from 2010 onwards been different to a, the, the Cameron government that we had? Um, well, and the Cameron government was not bad, actually. It was a very good coalition government. Uh, if I'd been in coalition, I doubt that it would have changed much. I mean, the, the coalition worked very well. Uh, Lib Dems were quite good, uh, were good coalition partners, they were a perfectly reasonable lot. Um, and and uh, divisions within the government and arguments about things weren't even on party lines, actually. Uh, you know, when we did disagree and had to come to some conclusions to how we're proceeding, often you'd have liberals and conservatives on one side and liberals and conservatives on the other. Um, uh, I, I, I probably I'm a combative, reforming sort of bloke, an activist sort of bloke, which is no doubt one of my weaknesses. Uh, so I don't know. We probably have I, I've probably gone in for some again carried on my my every, every every department I ever had. I had to have some agenda. I had to be changing something for what I thought was a worthwhile difference. That's a bit more of that, but I don't think there's anything wrong with Cameron's record apart from the one obvious blemish, which will damage his historical reputation irreversibly, that this reckless, sort of irresponsible uh, decision to hold a referendum. And Tony's the same. Tony Blair ran a pretty good government, really. Uh, but there was one awful, terrible mistake. Super Iraq. Iraq, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, he'll, he'll never get rid of that in his historic reputation. And I defied the Tory whip and Ian Duncan Smith, our leader, and all that by being the most vociferous conservative against the invasion of Iraq. So, but anyway, we, we, I, I otherwise I'm not sure the tone of the government. I hope if I'd led it, uh, would have been very similar. Actually, looking back. That last time I stood, uh, it was a very good idea that I lost in, in the sense that the, the decision taken was very sensible. Skip a generation, get away from all the old arguments. I had far too much baggage. Uh, I might have won that last time, except my votes were all taken by Cameron. And people who I always thought were going to vote for the parliamentary party, suddenly, you could tell they were suddenly saying they're going to vote for Cameron, because Cameron was saying the right modernizing, one nation, Tory things. He had absolutely no backstory. He was not associated with the battles of Maastricht and he hadn't been around arguing with trade unions years ago and all that. Turn over a page 
And he made the Conservative Party electable again. We'd gone through 10 years having right-wing leaders who couldn't have won an election if they'd gone on for a thousand years. And he made us electable again. And, and he, he carried on in coalition, helped by the fact the Liberals were a good influence on, on the cabinet, helped by the fact he was in coalition to run a pretty good stable government. I, I was so did the guy, I followed him for four years. It was pretty good. But towards the end, I did have a damn great row with him when I read in the newspapers he was going to promise this wretched referendum. And as we see, as he's publishing his book, uh, trying to defend himself over that is dominating the political discussions around the publication of his book, and it's inevitable. How, it's, I, can't, I can't imagine myself how, with hindsight, it's ever going to look as though that was a responsible thing to have done. Uh, you, you mentioned defying the whip. You've, you've now had the whip removed, which is just incredible. As a, as a, a odd, view, yeah. as a view of politics, Ken Clark has had the Conservative whip removed. So, well, Hezer had hit the whip removed in the House of Lords yeah. about two months ago. But he's just. Uh, I've joined him. I mean, he, John Major would have the whip removed if he had one, but he's not going to the Lords. You're still a Conservative member. You're still a Conservative member of Parliament. I'm still a Conservative. It makes not. I mean, it makes not the slightest practical difference to me. I mean, nothing has changed, whatever. <laughs> the Conservative Party is still operating in the same way in the House of Commons. Um, you know, I sit where I used to sit, and uh, I, I eat with all my colleagues. There's no personal animosity at all. Carry on exactly as I did before. Uh, and I will tend, depending how long I've to vote Conservative, except on Europe, which has been going on some time ever since we, we got into this current mode on Europe. And... So I've long ago announced I wasn't going to stand at the election. So I'm just bemused, slightly amused. Um, I apparently am a member of the Conservative Party. I had a conversation, friendly one, and we you know, just bumped into the coroner. I know quite well. James Cleverly and I weren't quite sure whether I was still a member of the Conservative Party. And was he still my chairman? But we, he checked it. Yes, I am. I'm still a member of the Conservative Party. I've just lost the whip. So, I, I mean, it, 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 I am angry on behalf of my younger colleagues. I'm not, not the ones that were pursuing were in midterms with very good political careers, who, if they, we don't find a way of getting out of this nonsense in the next two or three weeks, uh, there's going to be rows about them being uh, uh, candidates in the forthcoming election. That is very serious. Somebody like me. Frankly, I couldn't care less. <laughs> it doesn't make the slightest difference to anything I do or, or plan. Uh, even I have finally realised that the time has come to pack it in. You know, all, my, all my friends are very kindly and politely urging me not to understand. But anyway, the, losing the Conservative whip is... Uh, nobody told me. I read in the newspapers. It, 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 uh, I gather I have lost the whip. Um, but, it, it's, but it's no practical difference. It's a very important practical difference to some of the 21. And I shall regret it if some very good people are taken out of the party or taken out of politics. Because I'm sure they, ne they never, never imagined that 21 were going to lose the whip. Having got themselves into his mess, I trust Downing Street and the whip's office are trying to think of some face-saving way of getting out of it and giving the whip back. If there's an ounce of common sense left in Downing Street, that is obviously what they should be doing. Okay, let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, if, we can, uh, if you indicate clearly a question you'd like to ask Ken, uh, we'll get a rover mic over to you. And if we can ask for one-sentence questions, 
and one sentence answers, Ken. And we're uh -huh. <laughs> that's, that's what all television interviewers say to me before it starts. Uh, so yes, the, yes. the gentleman over on the far I'll try. Uh, and I'll try and, get, uh, try and get three or four in, but if you could pass the microphone down. Uh, quickly, let us know your name and a quick question. And here we go. Hi, my name's Dan. Um, first, well, first question, only question for Ken is, when did you first come across the Nigel Farage and what was your immediate impression? I met him a few times, uh, appearing on television with him. Uh, on th obviously on, on, on Question Time uh, and things like that. Uh, I get on very well with him. Uh, he's, he, he, you know, with the two of us. I've never fallen out with anybody, personally, over their political opinions. And we've had quite amusing conversations and things. Uh, and uh, we, I think, you know, each of us... In, I can't see it. I don't think we'd ever be good, you know, close personal friends because we're very different personalities. But I, yeah, we get on perfectly reasonable, yeah, and, and uh, I have no objection to him. I, I think he has quite a different style of campaigning to me or anybody else. But he, he's a very he's a brilliant campaigner, appealing to the audience he's appealing to. He's very, he's very shrewd. He's got, he's got his head screwed on the right way. I suspect he was rather canny commodity trader in the city when he used to do that uh, and, and he's achieved extraordinary success simply because he latches on to the mood of the times which uh, I delated on extensively uh, a little time ago but um, now I have to admit much though I regret it because what he canvassed for is fundamentally against one of my you know, most deeply held political convictions yeah, I don't underestimate him. That's why I think if the party crashes on with this mad policy of trying to win older white working class votes in leave voting constituencies in the north of England, they're up against it, not just the Labour Party, they've got Nigel uh, to take on. And he knows what he's doing. I bet one is entourage in a curry house in London. And I met him before. I met him with Nigel. So I had a long chat with him. And the two of us appraised the pleasant political situation in a very similar way. <laughs> I think they're quite confident that, uh, you know, things, they, they could make a difference. They're not going to form a government or anything. But they could make a difference if we crash into a, an early election on the present basis. But I, I, have no reason, I have no reason to have any ill feelings towards Nigel Farage. I've got on personally very well. We once were on a question time together on television, and we both got booed by the audience. I uh, remember what this issue was now. The two of us had answered some completely non-European question, and by happy coincidence, we took an identical view, which was plainly against the majority, contrary to the majority of what are nowadays the very noisy question time audience you have. So I had the intriguing thing, as did he, of uh, sitting there being booed by large sections of the audience for agreeing with Nigel Farage and he vice versa. I can't remember who it was now. <laughs> Is there anyone here that would like to ask a question? Yes, the lady at the back. Um, you talked a little bit about um, Thatcher busting the unions and how that was necessary to modernising the economy, which I, to be clear, do not disagree with. But um, I guess a lot of people would now trace that back to breaking worker power and actually looking today, a lot of the economic issues we have are around workers not having a way to be able to make their weight felt, particularly in negotiations. And you can see that a lot with 
wages and also the kind of contracts that they end up getting involved in. I don't know if you agree with that or if you think there's any particular way forward. I don't think there's a direct link. Uh, the union power I'm talking about was the extraordinary union power that developed in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and before we got elected in 1979, the Thatcher government that is, uh, there was an opinion poll held about who the most powerful people were in the country, and it was a guy called Jack Jones, another called Hugh Scargill, uh, the public saw as the most powerful people in the country, and a lot of politicians agreed with that. Uh, and there were a lot of conservatives very cautious about union reforms, uh, again Jim Pryor, because you, you couldn't annoy the unions, the public would back the unions, the public always backed the unions, and they always backed strikes. Uh, and it would become absolutely overwhelming. If you were a business leader, I was told at the time, I wasn't one, certainly if you were a minister, as I was, a high proportion of your working day was supposed to be spent on industrial relations. One of the things I tried to break from in health was to actually have a look at the system and delivery of healthcare. The, the, the job was supposed to be uh, conducting and getting a recent settle, reasonable settlement of this year's pay claim for the highly industrialized workforce of the who's And the idea that patient outcomes should rank above an agreement on the pay terms and conditions of the members was, was kind of unthinkable. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm slightly you know, coloring it with my argument, not a great deal. Uh, uh, and that had to be broken. And, uh, Scargill and the coal mines, that was what decided it. That was the decisive event. That was the end of the old 1960s union power. And, and Scargill had got right in one government that the strike was called in order to get rid of the government. That's what it was about. Uh, the, the cause he was allegedly fighting was ludicrous, that no coal mine should ever be closed in future until all its reserves had been worked out. You, communist Czechoslovakia didn't couldn't release coal mines like that. Uh, it was in order to get rid of the Thatcher government. He got rid of the Heath government, and he now called a strike to get rid of a second one. And that was the final Waterloo of what had been a long battle for 10, 15 years. Now, it is true, the world is now totally transformed, and a tiny proportion of the workforce in the private sector now have any organization. And one of the problems of the last 20 years is the successful in the new economy are very successful uh, and a large part of the population like the new digital modern high-tech economy and about half the population are stuck still doing nothing for them no jobs for their kids and their town's been left behind and amongst other things there's no much, not much union representation that is i think caused by the type of economy we developed hasn't just happened here happened in America, happened in most other countries, and as you go into today's economy, as opposed to the old heavy industrial economies of my youth, then trade union organizations got to be different, it doesn't always work, the whole sections where you, you can't get union power anyway. As I said earlier, I think we've all collectively not quite sure what to do about this left behind feeling, which is what gives rise to protest, extremist politics, angry anti-establishment feelings, rejections of polit politicians as a whole class, and an attraction for powerful, usually male, apart from Madame Le Pen, machismo, 
figures with simple solutions who can identify scapegoats, foreigners usually, who are responsible for your state of affairs. And, and something between the old abuse of union power, which we broke, and today's populist, nationalist uh, protests uh, has got to be found. And it'd be nice to have something which uh, ran capitalism and free markets on a basis which was perceived to distribute the benefits fairer. But you can't go back from where we are now and have somebody like Arthur Scargill back again. There's got to be some happy compromise, which I suppose is just the story of my life. I usually wind up arguing for the happy compromise in most things, believe it or not, despite the combative style I sometimes adopt in trying to get it. Okay, we've got time for one last question. There's a yeah, I haven't given you this one sentence answer. <laughs> let's see if we can now. Uh, just keep your hand up because the microphone's coming to you so that Jules can see you. Uh, let's know your name and obviously final and therefore best question of the night. I'm Lucy. I'd really like to know what you think about Joe Swinson. About who? <laughs> <laughs> Joe Swinson, the leader of the Liberal Democrats. Oh, Joe, yeah, I, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, want me, do you want me to answer that seriously? Yes. Uh, she's very nice, she's very bright. I, I like her. I'd have voted, I would have voted for Ed Davey. Uh, he's another Nottingham man. Uh, but I, I, the, the jury's out on Joe. I mean, I, I, I wait to see. I can't. I mean, I'm not a Liberal Democrat. But, but uh, the, the, the great opportunity of the Liberal Democrats, whenever the Liberal Democrats surge, they're the vehicle for protest votes. And so they've got it. She's suddenly presented with a great opportunity because there are a lot of protest votes about uh, from right and left. Now, so she's she's got lots of qualities. She's good, bright, intelligent, honest, and well, you know, motivation is fine. All rest of it. I like her, uh, and she's very articulate. My reservation is: Can I see Joe becoming a national political figure? I'm not sure. She could suffer the fate of Tim Farron who's a perfectly decent guy, perfectly all right. And, you know, but, but Tim was never going to make any great mark on the national stage. He just doesn't have the, you know, the personality and the, what you no doubt need to a certain extent, eccentric personal style to make a mark as a political campaigner. Now, is Joe just going to be a very nice woman uh, who happens to be the leader of the Liberal Party whilst they're in protest? Well... I think the jury's out. I was, you know, raised my eyebrows at this Liberal Assembly, but I can see the arguments for taking a, a rather bold, possibly reckless, but only with hindsight will you know whether it'll be dismissed as reckless or courageous, uh, and so on. You never know. So that, that's a non-answer to the last question. Isn't possibly the, might be the shortest I've given, but it's not a very competitive field. Uh, 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 and uh, I wait to see what Joe Swinson's like, but I'm not. I, I, I rather welcome her arrival on the scene, much though I'd have liked my mate Ed to have been given a go instead. But I, I'm not a Liberal Democrat, so that had nothing to do with me. Please give a huge thank you to one of the greatest guests we've ever had here, potentially our next Prime Minister, Kim <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Well, there you go. Ken Clark from 2019. Matt Ford here in 2024. Um, delighted to be back. Um, so you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. You can uh, leave a five-star written review, uh, should you find it within your heart to do so, uh, and spread the word about the show. And new episodes are coming soon. Um, it, there might not be... There'll be a replay episode, if nothing else, uh, next week. Um, uh, but I'm... <laughs> Don't make excuses because I'm, I'm sure you understand the, the challenges of these things, but I'm still on strong medication. I wouldn't want to record episodes that weren't any good, but I think it'd be fun. probably quite fun to do it uh, on, on a load of tramadol. So um, we will see. Um, but new episodes coming soon. And um, again, thank you for messaging me. Uh, all of you while I was in there. Um, it, it, you know, it made. It, I think all those things. Just knowing that people are thinking about you and wishing you well genuinely gives you strength at difficult moments. And I'm sure there'll be a time when I reflect more deeply about uh, the experience. But honestly, and, and that is just, I think, a lesson for life. If you know someone now that isn't just in hospital, but is going through something or that you, uh, you know, are worried about or whatever, message them. Because some people think, ah, oh, I don't want to message them because it might upset them or it might take them back to that place but if they're going through something knowing just wishing someone well and telling them that you're thinking about them and and wishing them some form of positivity and strength genuinely cheers people up so uh, if nothing else I take that Um, of course there there are other things that I take from my time in hospital and my experience with cancer but um, it uh, that is a big one I think is uh, is is getting in touch and letting people know that uh, that you, you, you're hoping for them uh, or praying for them or, or however you express that. It really has a positive effect on people. So anyway, um, it's, you, can, you don't have to do that with me anymore. You can just leave a five-star review on iTunes and, and that is the same. And uh, yes, live shows and um, in every form will, will return as soon as I can um, stand and walk. And um, yes, I will start recording new episodes of this. Uh, as soon as I'm able. So, uh, yeah, great to be back, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.